You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to Real Vision. It's Tuesday, February 2nd, 2021, 2 p.m. in New York. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington, joined shortly by Tony Greer. Today, Tony, we're flying live without an intro. Welcome, Tony. Sounds perfect for us, Ash. Let's go. Tony, I only have two questions for you the entire show. Number one, what the hell is happening? And number two, how are you positioning yourself? Oh, good questions, man. What the hell is happening? I'm asking you that myself, right? Like, we we, we have to talk about GameStop, and we have to yeah. talk about Robin Hood, and we have to talk about Citadel, and this story a little bit, right? Because what's, to me, what I'm seeing is I'm seeing, like, the younger generation fry itself in meme wars, trying to every market, every market connotation, every move, Every narrative and storyline has to get memed out to its most basic, understandable level. And unfortunately, you leave a lot of facts out when you start memeing the crap out of every story on Earth. And sometimes it just doesn't work. And I feel like that's what we're watching. Like, you know, the, we're watching the Icarus print of the market meme burn itself to shreds right now. Right. So the GameStop story. Right. All the Wall Street bet guys, Wall Street bets guys, they find a vulnerable security. But it's not a new story because Michael Burry and some of the ninjas of retail have spoken about this, right? They've right. talked about that there's upside potential in the name. Nothing new under the sun here. They start buying it and getting it on the run. And obviously, there's going to be derivative bets on the downside placed on GameStop because that's been a winning trade for years now, yeah. right? So, you know, you're going to have to allow these guys to find that, you know, value play in the market where the brick and mortar shop is overvalued and going out of business. And so they ride the short down and they've made a lot of money on it. Got it. Right. Melvin Capital now gets pushed into the mix with its large GME short. Melvin Capital has to stop out of the position. At Robinhood because of what's going on, they're going through the same machinations that every exchange in the world is has gone through when they've got volatile securities on their pads that are changing their cash flows second by second, right? So now Robinhood goes out and lies to everybody in the street saying, we're fine, we're fine, we're not blowing up, we're not blowing up, we don't need capital, which is exactly what everybody does when they need capital, right? And they go to their investors and they say, we need capital. So in this attempt to take on the suits, what's going to happen is Robinhood is going to get a cash infusion at a lower level. And the suits that put money into that are going to make a fortune as long as Robinhood can survive. We've got Melvin Capital is out of GameStop. Who cares? Right. Mr. Steve Cohen put in an additional investment to sort of pad that loss for his investors in Melvin. And also Mr. Uh, Ken Griffin. And, and Ken Griffin is involved because another fact that we know ahead of time is that he's getting to see all the Robin Hood flow before it hits the street. Yeah. 
Right? By the way, for people, this is Citadel and Point72. Right. Well, Citadel, let's talk about for separate here. They're two separate players in this story, Ash, because, you know, Citadel gets to see all the Robin Hood flow before yeah. it hits the street. Steve Cohen's shot point seventy two does not. That was right. a separate story. Yeah, Steve two Cohen's separate shot. stories. Cash infusion from Citadel and point seventy two. But for payment for order flow, uh, it is just Citadel. That's exactly right. That's exactly right, and the right way to look at it. So, but what's going on now at Robinhood is they're going through all of the financial survival steps that you have to go through when you've got margin calls coming, right? There are prime brokerage or the DTCC, I believe it was in this case, saying you're going to need to lay out this much cash for these positions you have on their books. Now, somehow- By the way, Tony, for people who don't understand this, who haven't been experienced in this, this is about net capital requirements and the relationships with clearing houses, which is such a critical part of this story. And if you're a retail investor, you may not have had exposure to that part of the story. Why is that so absolutely important? Forget about if you're a retail investor, if you didn't work at a big shop and had the understanding of how this back office machinations work in terms of payments going back and forth from your firm to the exchange, you might not have any idea how this goes yeah. on. A hundred percent. This is such an important point. If you don't know about clearing and settlement, you probably wouldn't know about it if you didn't work at a big bank. This is so crucial and inherent in this is the solvency of the firm, number one, and also the capacity of broker dealers to make money on things like margin lending. This is so critical to Wall Street. And if you're just sitting at home, uh, you know, entering uh, entering trades on your on your retail brokerage account, it's something that you probably just don't know about because you've never experienced. That's right. And you've never thought about the, you know, second level machinations of in a squeeze like this, where there are obviously going to be a large, there's obviously going to be a large retail presence buying, you know, YOLO calls out of the money, et cetera, et cetera. But there's going to be a driver in there that is some professional capacity, right? I think that it's been proven that there's been more volume in GameStop than could possibly just be retailers. So now you've got a case potentially where you've got institutional investors that are in there that are long the stock and pulling their stock from stock loan so that it can't be borrowed, right? So they're, they're right. creating another squeeze in the name that they're long so that they could potentially sell it. So if you didn't know about all the machinations that go on behind a short squeeze and margin requirements, et cetera, et cetera, you suddenly have got a great opportunity to call out the suits and the establishment, and that's a very marketable call right now, right? The timing is just opportunistically perfect to point up at the big institution like Point72 and Citadel and call them out, which is right. what Mr. Portnoy, the Barstool Presidente, did. Now, I understand his frustration that Robinhood shut down trading. At, you know, Let's not go into the details. Robinhood restricted trading in GameStop and several other names restricted reason, trading to one share for a minute right there. right restricted trading yeah. and you can't you can't you can't get long it your only allowable transaction is to liquidate a long position so it very much looks like they're padding it in favor of the shorts who need to buy it who were steve cohen's shop and what it really is behind the scenes is robin hood saying we're not taking any more risk in these stocks right now until we cover our margin Right. And until we get the capital infusion that we need to continue to run our business, yeah. we can't let somebody come in and blow themselves up on a levered call option anymore. 
by the way, to give you a sense of the leverage trade and for, for, for the audience, so I, I got a buddy of mine, um, former banker, who was talking to me last night. He's up uh, about 4500 bucks on a trade uh, where he's selling calls on GameStop. He had to post $100,000 in cash before he was able to buy one contract to do it. That's the kind of risk exposure that Robinhood and other brokers are trying to insulate themselves for. To just understand that because of the volatility, there's a huge amount of implied risk in this trade. And they, are they, the broker dealers, are getting collateral calls from their clearinghouses. Exactly. So this is what happens when you've got all these levered bets that are um, – sort of imploding, right? The short levered bets are imploding on the upside while the guys that are long the calls are making all the money. But there's kind of two, there's two stories to this story to me. And there's actually even another angle of it too, because, you know, it, it's just it's socially and culturally, it's fascinating to me to see Dave Portnoy get his back up about this. You know, it's perfectly opportunistic for him to call out Citadel, right? Like we know there's a connection between Citadel and Robin Hood. Um, but then to get into this tiff with Steve Cohen, who you can say what you want about Steve Cohen. That's not what we're here to discuss. We're here to discuss this specific instance with Melvin Capital and how Steve reacted with Dave Portnoy. And Steve was trying to be above board and share with Dave if he wants to make an additional investment in one of his existing funds while it's blowing up to prevent the loss from getting any further. He's allowed to do that. Right. He's allowed to do that. Dave Portnoy was invited to take a phone call from Steve Cohen and probably Steve could have given him an education on how this works. Portnoy's too big for the phone call. Right. Doesn't take it. He says back room deals happen on phone calls. So he wants it all out in the open. So now he's not going to get an education on what's going on with the markets and calls out Steve Cohen to the point that, you know, the, the barstool army starts coming or, or possibly the Wall Street bets army starts coming after Steve Cohen on Twitter. Yeah. And now to me, that's totally outrageous that Steve Cohen now has to feel these threats on Twitter when he's really trying to educate the person that is improperly throwing stones at him. You know, you know Tony, just to jump in here and I just give a little bit of context talking about education. So I'm not an expert in payment for order flow. Right. But a little bit of preliminary research that I've done in this says when you buy order flow, when a, when a fund like Citadel buys order flow from a retail broker uh, like Robinhood, effectively, they buy two things, right? They buy access to the order flow and they buy optionality. What does that mean? So it means that the they can the, they have the option, the fund who's buying it, the Citadels in, of the world, have the option of either internalizing the trade, right? So that they can internalize it based on their own order book or the second thing that they can do is they can route it directly to the exchange floor. So the idea uh, that big hedge funds are in this impossible bind when there's volatility in the stock, it's not really quite the case because they can just go, okay, we're not touching it. It goes out. We're not going to internalize it. We don't have to take on the risk. Let's just route it to the order. Let's just route that order flow to the exchange or to the ATS. That's right. Or right across uh, the screens of our high frequency traders that allow them to profit on it once more before it actually gets executed. But they have the that's, option. Of, they have the option. That's the important. They have the option. They have the option. But, you know, that's a pretty good option to get. You know, that's why they see the order flow, because if they can have somebody taking them out of a position that they maybe want to be taken out of, they can execute it against their book. If they want to route it to the floor, they can go ahead and execute it outright on the floor like that. Yeah. So 
And by the way, if you're if you're an expert in this, come and join us on Real Vision Daily Briefing. Let us know yeah. if you've been involved in in these sorts of transactions, and you uh, you want to come out. We'll also uh, we'll black we'll uh, we'll uh, black out your face, uh, you know, with a with a hedge fund uh, with the hedge fund guys with a hoodie. If you want to talk, uh, speak freely. But it's just a fascinating topic and one that so few people who are on the retail side really understand. I don't understand it that clearly myself. It's not a transparent process. No, it's very difficult. But what it looks like, Ash, is it looks like we're already in the seven middle of the seventh inning stretch of the Wall Street bets short raids, right? I, I think that you know, listen, look, a whole bunch of them made a whole bunch of money in GameStop, but you know, the reality is is that the weakest of those traders that waved into GameStop long last are the ones that probably got caught holding the bag too and lost a whole bunch of their own money. So, you know, that's where I get, you know, that's where I sit here on the sidelines seething at watching Portnoy go back and forth with Cohen, um, you know, and Cohen is trying to set the record pretty straight here and Portnoy doesn't want to hear it, right? He's going over his head. He's going to Tucker Carlson and he's raging about the injustice and he's going on Chris Cuomo, who knows less about markets than anybody. And now I'm just trying to understand you know, he, what, what, what makes me upset is that he has fed a bad story to the public. The public has run with it. They came after Steve Cohen, who had to then leave Twitter. And now what the problem with social media is there's no, there's no look back on that, right? Jack Dorsey doesn't have to say, hey, is it a big deal that we just got the owner of the Mets and a hedge fund manager booted off of our platform due to threats? No, that's everyday business in the world of social media and Twitter, right? They just move on. So the world doesn't get to have Steve Cohen on Twitter. Dave Portnoy gets to let his army think that he's taking on the establishment and might change something about what? About margin requirements? About firms doing everything they can to survive financially in periods of high volatility? There's nothing new under the sun going on here, man. I hate to, I hate to tell everybody. You know, the form at which it attacks the market is very different. And very, very nihilistic and and very unprofessional, but that's fine. I don't care. As long as I know the rules, I can play by them. But there's just a real, real injustice there that, you know, it's it's fine that the short got squeezed, but in the world of maiming the story out and trying to simplify it, the street really lost the plot. Their street completely lost the plot aside from the people that really know what went on. And so yeah. that's why the GameStop thing to me is is um you know it's a sort of it's a sad collateral story to to how social um social situations are interacting with the market if we can call it that well that's exactly right and you know when uh, people have asked me is what happened right you cover markets what happened the the really simple answer right now is that we don't actually know definitively what happened you know you and i have a, a bit of an understanding about the way these things work in the back office we've got some context here but we don't know because we haven't seen data right. we're just talking about the stories in terms of plausibility look have hedge funds in the past let's be honest right have hedge funds in the past done things to manipulate prices of securities unfairly absolutely right that's just a fact do we know that they've done it in this case? Absolutely not. We haven't seen evidence for it. And if there's evidence that comes out, we'll look at it. But as of right now, right. the answer is we understand the, the basic context of the story. We get a pretty good sense of probabilities. It definitely seems like net capital requirements and the relationships with clearing uh, firms played a huge part in this. But we don't 
actually know yet. And that's a really uncomfortable thing to say. Nobody wants to say, hey, I don't really know exactly what happened. And when you don't know, when you don't have the information, when you don't have the data, you know what takes over? Emotion. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah, that's a good point. And we saw it, we saw it and have seen a lot of it. You know, the, the GameStop guys, you know, to, to segue a little bit, you know, rounded themselves up and they went after American Airlines <laughs> and they went after Silver. And, you know, you, I, I'm, I'm inspired by their spirit. Um, but, you know, it's, it's like going to try to create a short squeeze in an airline that has been depressed for 10 years and trying to create a squeeze off of the lows in a holding that every mutual fund has been choking on for 10 months. I'm sorry, man, but you're just going to wake up sellers, right? Yeah. The, the same kind of thing is happening with silver. You know, they've got this folklore story that there, um, you know, is this this huge shortage of silver. There may be a huge silver naked short out there. They believe the price is being depressed. And they're forgetting the fact that there are commodity merchants that have been in this market trying to figure out what's going on with silver and that short for years. So now they're trying to take silver on a run to the upside. They took it from 25 to 30. It came back all the way right to where it started from already. So. I think that they're getting an education the hard way, Ash. And yeah. I guess it's just kind of upsetting to me um, because it doesn't have to happen that way, you know, and, and maybe that's the way it's going on now and it's fine. But, you know, I, I feel like there's a lot of money being incinerated um, and I feel like there's a lot of hot air being wasted on this story that's not taking it in the right direction. You know, that is exactly the right point, Tony. And I'm so glad you said that because, you know, you and I spend most of our lives uh, working on democratizing financial information. It's the thing we're most passionate about. And we're, we're definitely not here uh, to defend hedge funds. That's the last thing That's right. we're doing, right? In fact, quite the opposite. The whole reason that we do what we do is because we love it uh, when you know the little guy can understand what's happening in the market, when they have the opportunity to make good decisions and to make money. And you know, I think the, these, whether the story, the narrative is always right, I think it's terrific with these kids uh, on you know younger people on GameStop, young guys and gals in their 20s, getting interested in markets, getting interested in finance. Best thing in the world, big picture. Man, kudos to them, hats off. I think it's great. The challenge is some of the narratives are a little bit more complicated, uh, or in some cases, a lot more complicated than they seem on the surface. And exactly as you said, these people who are doing going through this cycle, if you're 22 right now and you've just lost, you know, you know, five grand, which could be a huge amount of money if you're 22 years old. On a on a silver play that you you maybe didn't a hundred percent understand, I can guarantee you that that guy or gal, when they come up two or three years later, when they're talking to someone who's nineteen or twenty, you're gonna say, "Let me tell you something. I know what I'm talking about. I've lost money. That's the way that you learn." That's exactly right. You know, and maybe maybe I'm just sore because guys in our generation learned it a little bit differently. Like I've got my battle scars from the markets all over me, and that's fine. And it just seems like I got those in orderly fashion. Right. Okay. These guys are running their head into a wood chipper. Right. And it doesn't seem like it makes sense.
But either way, yeah. that's the lesson that they're going to learn. And I mean, you and I got yelled at by crusty old guys on the street. And, uh, you know, you, you get an education that way. These guys are getting an education. It's a little bit different. But fundamentally, I just think it's so great that you have people in their 20s getting out there, 20s and 30s getting out there, learning about this stuff. You know, you don't always win. And sometimes you get the best lessons where you get whacked. Yeah, yeah. And this this generation is is um, you know, trying to figure out how to get a hold of this stock market, it seems, right? They they haven't been invested like the generations that are out there discussing markets have been invested. And so they're not in in as comfortable a position. They're not as established yeah. professionally, they're not as established in the markets and in their savings and where they're living and and everything like that. Hey, listen, so, Tony. Can you imagine you're 25 years old, you've got a level of student debt from undergrad and grad school that's like five years of what the salary you hope to get is. And by the way, the city you live in is locked down. You can't even go out and try and find a job like, you know, and then everybody's telling you that, oh, it's your fault that markets aren't functioning correctly. I mean, you think about what younger people are facing today. It's brutal. It's brutal and it's bleak. And, and I understand where they're, where the nihilistic behavior comes from, right? And by nihilistic behavior, I mean that sort of head through the wall trade where we don't have all the facts, but we're willing to put our money up on the table and bet it anyway. You know, so it's like it's also exhilarating, right? Because these yeah. guys, you you hear about hedge funds are making money. Maybe you've been interested in markets. You know that uh, you know that this or that hedge fund manager made one hundred and twenty five million dollars last year, and suddenly you've got these guys by the lapels, and you get to shake them a little bit because you find out that they're one hundred and fifty two percent short interest uh, relative to the float of a stock. It's a thrilling thing. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. I, I, you know, I have no problem with them celebrating that victory, right? They've got the, uh, you know, they've got the GME Melvin Capital pelt, right, up on their wall, and and that's fine. And <laughs> by the way, talking about talking about Melvin Capital, one of the things that I, I've heard, and you know, there some people on on Twitter say, well, you know, Melvin Capital got bailed out. Listen, I got news for you. When point seventy two. Uh, and Citadel, when Steve Cohen and Ken Griffin come to you, they are taking that they are taking equity on very dear terms. I don't know if it's equity, but they're taking some stake in that business. The money that they put in, they have been very well compensated. Rest yeah, time. yeah, and 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 just just you know, there should be an understanding that taking on those guys from a retail perspective, you know, may be fun and it may be you know very gang forming, and you know you feel like you belong. But look at the headline that just came across the tape, Ash. 0.72 just raised another billion and a half dollars, right? If Portnoy would have taken the phone call with Steve Cohen, Cohen might have thrown him 100 million to the Barstool Fund, right? But he was too busy, you know, yelling and screaming at him because he thinks he's the guy pointing the finger. You, you're the guy that made them, my guys, not allowed to trade stocks. Totally bad information. And so we have the mess that we're coming out of emotion. with it now. Just yeah, a lot of emotion out there, people making money, people losing money. We just don't know. We just don't know. We don't know the terms of the deal that on, on Melvin Capital. We don't know what – it's just there's so much left to figure out and nobody wants to say that. It's just so easy to conveniently find people. And look, it's, it's part of the game. And what's interesting also is some of the things that you and I might have said on the trading floor when we were in our 20s about this or that guy or this or that shop. Like we said it between you and me and then nobody heard it. Maybe we said it at the bar. These That's guys are point. out there. They're expressing that information. And now somebody can screenshot your tweet three years later and blame you for something that you said about this or that guy, a rough, rough world. Oh man. Imagine if everything you said at the water cooler was stored on a tweet somewhere. Holy smokes. We Not a pleasant way to we go. We wouldn't be on TV. 
No, probably not. Not a pleasant way to go. So I, I, I understand the predicament. Um, I'm hoping that it finds uh, healthier outlets. Yeah. So talk, talk a little bit more about what you think of on silver. I mean, you know, silver is an interesting one because this is, the, the analysts are saying no underlying change in the fundamental demand for silver has occurred. There's no new information in the markets. This is purely a speculative play. We mine 800 million ounces of silver a year. We don't mine any new shares of GameStop ever, right? So these guys, I think, learned that, that there is production in the waiting for when you cause these big price spikes. And so I think they learned that, judging from the fact that silver went 26 bid, 30 bid, back to 26 offered, right? So they learned that higher prices in precious metals wake up sellers who own the precious metal and have another year's worth of production that they may like to hedge. So it's just a very different mentality in silver. So it was funny to be, you know, as a, as a former gold trader at J. Aaron for Goldman Sachs, I'm still in some pretty um, powerful metal circles where there are guys that were in metals trading their entire lives and they're now adults. And they're now passing around the story with the Wall Street Bets guy on an email saying, like, come on, look at these guys. Like, watch this. These guys are going to come into our world and squeeze a commodity. Well, we know what it looks like when a commodity gets squeezed. And it ain't silver on January 30th, 2021. Just doesn't look like that. Right. There is no fundamental backdrop where we have a shortage. So that's going to be a problem. Um, you know, people have thought people have had this inclination that there is far more than one claim to every contract on the exchange. And so that there could be a silver squeeze because of that. But they haven't figured out that the risk of trying to take delivery of all that silver to try to squeeze out a short is not worth it to anybody. And so people can lend out their metal. And that's a reason why from time to time, there may be more than one claim on a bar in a warehouse. But that doesn't mean that there's going to be a shortage um, and the price needs to go and double and triple and quintuple and go up 350% like GameStop. So right. all I can do in this scenario is point out the obvious differences to these guys that they are not comparing apples to apples with GameStop to silver. They're two different animals and they will not behave the same when under attack. So Tony, that's, we've all, we've taken on question one. I think we got a great context of what's actually happening right now or what the best likely scenarios are out there and how potentially to think about them, some mental models for how to think about them. Question number two, what are you doing right now in this market? I am um, I'm enjoying the commodity and equity bull market moves that I'm seeing on the screen today. Um, it's really important to me that oil's making a new high today. We, we got positive optics this week with um, BP taking down five cargoes in the North Sea yesterday. So we got positive optics there. And more importantly, underneath the hood of the market, we've got spreads going from flat to pretty steeply backwardated in one month's time. So, for example, the whole crude calendar was just worth about a dollar at the end of 2020 and is now worth about 350. So what we've got there is prices, excuse me, calendar spreads tightening. For example, the first three month spread just went from being flat to being 80 cents backwardated. So what you're having now is you're seeing demand more in the front end of the curve than the back. 
that is a pretty positive scenario for the price of oil. And the fundamental backdrop is as solid as could be, man. You know, if you, if you look at the data, I, I, I thought we got really interesting and very positive economic data yesterday, Ash. We get that. You remember the last time we talked about that uh, ISM price is paid number? Yeah. Which is what, you know, manufacturing manufacturers are paying for their input raw material costs. And the price is paid number hit a new high of 82.1 for January. And that's not speculating about inflation. That is inflation. Those are prices that were paid higher than incrementally have been paid for more raw materials. And what was so great about seeing that number and the and the positive PMIs come out from Europe right into the U.S. time zone, all around 55 or better indicating growth, was that the mark, the bond market took it like inflationary type of action. You know, we saw the curve steepen right away. When, when this data came out, we saw U.S. 10-year yields perk right back up to the highs of the move, above, uh, above 1%. So the bond is going to take this economic data as a sign of economic strength and interpret it as that and more activity right. and inflation. This is going to be good for our natural resources trading. You know, you know? Tony, to exactly that point, for people who aren't following this, uh, the energy markets, especially at the level of granularity that you are, let me just zoom the lens out, give them the 50,000-foot view. Right now, WTI uh, trading just under 55 bucks a barrel on NYMEX. Brent, uh, just under 58. You look at the 12-month charts on that. You look at the chart from the depths of where we were at the worst moments uh, in this pandemic, I guess in March uh, or April. Huge, huge gains. They're huge gains, Ash, and I'm more bullish now than I was six months ago. Uh, I'll say that, right? Like, I, I think there's a more, there's a better chance of crude oil going to 65 or 75, obviously because price is closer now, but not just because price is closer, also because the fundamental backdrop has improved, right? We're still seeing China import a record number of liquids in energy. We're now we're just seeing the spreads tighten up. And when you've got that combo with the strong underlying data that we're seeing, and to me, the bigger deal is that we've got the WTI zero print in the rearview mirror, and we've got this mad rush into alternative energy as an overlay. Right. So, you know, people talk about the lack of value play in the markets, and I'm sitting over here looking at, you know, ExxonMobil right now, who may have just turned their first improfitable quarter, but they're hanging on to the dividend. The stock is off the lows. They're mm -hmm. talking. They're talking. Really, most importantly to me, they're pivoting into clean energy, right? So if, if these stocks, if these companies figure out how to have a place in the new, you know, carbon footprint managed world, that's going to be interesting. But today, Exxon said they're going to spend three billion dollars to to reduce their carbon emissions through twenty twenty five. But more importantly, they're working on a critical technology that you need to achieve zero emissions. So they're working on technology towards getting people toward a lower carbon footprint. And I think that they'll be the companies that figure that out. Yeah. And while while the baby is getting thrown out with the bathwater, I'm still happier to play those from the long side while the whole entire world just goes and chases solar and alternative energy stocks to a new high. And you know, after the run that they've been on, I'm no longer interested in being along them up here. We've got Joe Biden in the White House and he's making all of his moves. So I feel like the run in solar energy is still showing signs that it's done. It hasn't made a new high since Biden got inaugurated. 
So I feel like there's still a lot of value in the energy space and and even in the commodity space, broadly speaking, right from base metals, precious metals to grains. Yeah, Tony, that's such a great analysis, and it's so important. You know, if you think about the Exxon Mobiles of the world, these guys really know how to hire top tier talent. They know how to recruit engineers, geologists. They know how to run big projects. It's it seems like just like a no brainer that they'd be getting into the clean energy space. These guys know the managerial practices. They know how to run projects. It just seems like such a brilliant fit. It's surprising it took them so long. Yeah, I th- it's true. It does. It is surprising that it's taken them so long for the pivot. It does seem right. very eleventh hour for the pivot. Like they should have been doing this heading into, um, you know, maybe they shouldn't have. But you know, when you see markets interpreting a Biden administration coming, you know, with the solar stocks on the run, you would have thought that they might have gotten even further ahead. But maybe these are the plans now, Ash. Right? That are that yeah. are hitting the tape that they've been working on. But what's really what's interesting to me is that. The people in the energy markets that I speak to, and I speak to people that work for oil services companies and some for ENP companies. Um, and what's interesting is their industry is energized because I think they realize that this full push to no fossil fuels by 2030, which is some of the European and UN plans, et cetera, I think that they know in their hearts that those plans are too aggressive. I think that they know that they're the administration and, and you know the the likes of Davos and the World Economic Forum that are that are really behind this whole green push. I think they know that fossil fuel holds all the power, right? If you compare the combustibility of fossil fuel to sort of you know wind wind and solar, fossil fuels you can get so much more energy out of such a small space. I was you know, and that's the right. that's the allure of the carbon. Um, market. And so I think they're realizing that if they can stay alive and, and, and survive the green energy push by maybe, you know, facilitating less fossil fuel use. And I mean, who else are we going to better, who better are we going to have to go to, to figure out how to reduce carbon emissions than those who are pulling the fossil fuels out of the ground and know all about the carbon emissions. So I agree that I've had the feeling that once they started pivoting toward this space, the stocks would do a little better, which is really all we care about, quite honestly. And um, if they can get through this window where you know, the big political push realizes that we're not going to ever be able to get a plane up in the air with wind or solar power. And we're probably not going to be able to get 100% of the automobiles off the road that are being driven with carbon, um, call it fossil fuels. So right. I think they realize that if they can get through this window, do you know what I mean, where it just looks really ugly and bad for any fossil fuel company, that maybe there's another life on the other side for them providing them. And so I think that that's how the industry is approaching it. And, and to me, that just makes the stocks even more attractive. And so that, that's a big part of the trade as I do. I've done more study on the science of this trade lately because I'm working on a paper. Um, but there's all the, all, the, all the information that you want out there about the shortcomings of, of just the lack of ability to produce enough energy from solar and wind. And the ability to do all you want with, you know, nuclear and fossil fuels. So as you get comfortable with that, you get more comfortable trying to buy these stocks off the lows. And that's what's important to me. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements. Or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. 
Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Yeah, you know, Tony, that's such a great balanced perspective and understanding the nuances behind this. E&P, of course, is exploration and production, a phrase used in the energy uh, sector, especially oil and gas. But look, the, the problem here isn't, you know, bad people who don't want to move us uh, to a to a carbon neutral future. The problem here is physics and chemistry, trying to get the number of joules per meter cubed out of the energy source. And look, we're going to get there. I mean, I'm an optimist about this. I believe that all of these technologies uh, that are coming, exactly as you said, they're evolving to the point where they're going to do it. But it's not going to be tomorrow, and it's not going to be you know necessarily 2025. It's a it's a long chain. How do you reduce the carbon output uh, of the existing fossil fuel vehicles? How do you transition to these new technologies? And how do you get really smart? scientists and engineers thinking up things that we don't even know about today that we can discuss because it's not an idea that's out there yet to reduce the carbon footprint. This should be great. This should be something that that everyone on both sides of the political spectrum agree on, want to get out there. And it's an opportunity for American companies to compete at a global level to find those solutions. Yep. Absolutely, man. It's going to be, um, you know, we are in the race with everybody else around the world. And, uh, you know, it's just going to be a question of who comes out on top and who is able to, you know, assist the transition to less fossil fuel energy. And that's the company that's going to win. And then we'll see if we can last on less fossil fuel energy, um, because I'm going to tell you that I don't think the battery power makers are going to be able to power the U.S. by themselves. And uh, we'll leave it at that for now, because that's such a deep and long conversation. Maybe we'll do our own podcast on that one day, Ash. Yeah, that would be awesome. By the way, yeah. speaking of really nerdy things that could be uh, a podcast, someone that I've been reading about lately is a guy named Roger Sperry. Roger Sperry is a Nobel laureate not an economist. Uh, he was a, a neurobiologist, and he won the Nobel Prize for research on something called split brain patients. We all know, we learn in grammar school that there are two sides of the brain. Uh, it's called lateralization of brain functionality, uh, left and right. The left side controls language, the right side is more holistic. This is a simplification, and I know neuroscientists uh, in the audience are probably going to say that I'm getting this wrong, but if you want to get a big picture, this is pretty decent. So what happens in split brain patients is the corpus callosum, which is the structure of the brain, that unites the left side and the right side of the brain gets severed, usually by an injury or a stroke, an illness, something like that. And what happens is these patients lose certain functionalities. Roger Sperry studied them. So there's a phenomenon we, we most of us know about called contralateral brain function. That means that the left side of your body uh, is controlled by the right side of your brain. Roger Sperry did something absolutely fascinating. He conducted these studies where he would show a patient something in their left eye uh, and if they had a split brain, the information wouldn't be able to move to the right eye. And it works on both sides. So here's what's totally fascinating. He would take a patient and show them something in their right eye, a picture, for example, of a, of a beautiful steak dinner, like a juicy steak, the kind of thing that you really start salivating over. And they wouldn't give them uh, a meal for like 12 hours. This is a stylized example, but you get the picture. And that steak image would never make it to the left side of their brain for language processing. So the guy couldn't tell you, I saw a picture of a steak, but they would ask him after he hadn't had a meal for like 10 or 12 hours, you know, hey, Joe, what do you feel like eating? And he would say, oh man, I'm really craving a steak. And they'd say, that's interesting. Why? And he would say, well, you know, I go out for a steak dinner every night, uh, every Saturday night with my wife and 
her what her mother is sick and I haven't seen her as much. They make up these incredibly elaborate stories to justify their preference. Here's the interesting thing about it. This is true of split brain patients, but it's true of everyone. When you don't have information, especially where there's strong emotions, something like hunger or guess what, fear or greed in the stock market, you make up a story. And if you want a fascinating take on what's happened over the last week, go and look at the stories that people have made up in their own heads. This is what you were talking about earlier. You have a really strong feeling, oh, those guys over there must be bad. Those guys at hedge funds are taking advantage of people. Maybe it's true, maybe it's not. Doesn't matter. The brain makes up stories. We saw this with the uh, the chair of the of the House Banking Committee. As soon as the story started to break, they were out there talking about how they were going to go out and investigate these gruddy hedge funds. Now, look, is it possible that hedge funds took advantage of some loopholes that permitted naked shorting that maybe they shouldn't? Sure, absolutely, of course. But when you look at those statements that come out of, and I don't want to just pick on one particular congressman, but you look at the the tenor of things that you hear online. People go with their bias and they make up a story and they can tell you with great precision why they feel that way. But really, it's the Roger Sperry case. It's they saw the picture of the steak, they craving it, they just don't know why. And it gets expressed in language with absolute certainty. It's fascinating stuff. That certainly sounds like it relates to what we're seeing in the markets with everything being memed out to a you know picture of from the Joker movie and and that's enough to explain what's going on in this trade you know things like that so it doesn't shock me at all it's a very interesting story Rash. Yeah. So as we're in these turbulent times Tony as we're looking forward toward the rest of the week and next week what are your thoughts what are you going to be watching for uh, and how are you going to be continuing to change your own positioning? I'm still focusing on the natural resource trade, uh, you know, really intently. And most importantly, that it looks like we are going to shake off the de-risking associated with GameStop and continue on our merry way with this equity bull market, Ash. You know, um, as long as we're getting stronger data and the bond market is not dislocating to the downside on any type of inflationary data and there are beautiful breakout stories all over the equity market. I mean, 2021 looks like champagne wishes and caviar dreams for the S&P, for me, for, you know, just from what I'm looking at. You can look around at almost every sector of the market and see, I like that's a good story. That's a good story. That's a good story in energy that we just talked about. No matter what, it's a good energy story. Right. We're at a we're at a crossroads of energy here in the United States of America. I mean, this is exciting. Right. What's your what's your trade? You want to sell solar on rallies? You want to buy solar on rallies? You want to buy energy out of the dip? All of it is all of it is meritocracy worth trades. Right. You want to invest in a cannabis company right now? Pick one, man. It's one of there's still one of the cheap valuation plays in the markets. And now they're getting some, you know, now they're getting legislation legs again. You know, look around them, look in the home builder sector. There's positive stories all over the home builder sector with this huge uh, migration to the suburbs. You know, interesting breakouts going on there to new highs. So even in technology now, since Biden has been inaugurated, we got the best two earnings reports ever out of Facebook and Apple. And while they sold off into those earnings because maybe they got ahead of themselves, it's tough to fade the stock market with Apple and Facebook putting up record earnings in every quarter. 
So, by the way, yes. Amazon and Alphabet reporting after the bell today. That's right, and I and I still feel like Fang is going to struggle versus what we just saw it do, which was like a lion coming out of a cage, roaring, you know, up fifty percent last year. A lot of these names. Now, I don't think we're going to replicate that. I still feel like they won't be as in favor this year. And that originally made me a little bit bearish the stock market, right? Saying, hey, if Apple and Amazon aren't going to rally, then the S&P and the Dow Jones aren't going to rally. And like I just tried to describe, when you look around the market, I mean, I've changed my own mind from that idea, looking around the market saying, man, there's so many places right now that I would put money if I had more money. So there's more trades than there is capital available to, you know, to get them on the run. So I just feel like that's a pretty positive uh, scenario for stocks. We're going to eventually, eventually get the velocity of money picked up again when we, you and I start going to the movies and then to the bar and then to a show and then to go visit our buddies in Colorado or whatever we're doing. So once that money gets velocity behind it, right, we've, the Fed has done this big you know, magic trick of goosing M2 supply to the sky. We're you know, deteriorating the dollar. Whether it's on purpose or not, I don't really care. It's happening. Um, you know, and so all of this is positive for equities. And I, I just struggle to find, you know, we come across every little stepping stone and every little banana skin in the rally. And, you know, it's so easy because this has been such a powerful market for bears to say, okay, that was it. Here we go. You know, and if you look at the tape, man, I mean, you could be the best short selling trader on the planet and you've got a window about this big and about 30 seconds long to cover your short and make money on it. Otherwise, everybody's off and running again, right? And so, you know, you have to pay close attention to that dynamic where, you know, every time it looks like something can curl over, there's just nothing doing because another sector of the market picks its head up, starts running, another commodity, there's another shortage over there. This is not the type of, of risk rally that I really want to fade at any point until something dramatically changes about the mechanics of it. Yeah, very well said. Uh, all I know is I want to go to a bar before I go to a movie theater. Yeah, well, I like to go after. Otherwise, if I have drinks, I fall asleep in the movie theater because it's nice and cool and air conditioned in there. And that is a snooze maker for me. Yeah, now I want to go and have a steak at a bar. I want to go down to 53rd and 3rd, my buddy Doug Quinn's joint, Hudson Malone. Oh, it's a good spot. Very good spot. I would love to do that, man. Maybe we'll put that uh, first on our calendar, huh? I love it. And we'll send Raul the bill. <laughs> I like the way you think, Tony. Yeah, yeah. Let's do it right. Let's do let's it right. Do it. Tony Greer, thanks for joining us. Ash, great talk today, man. Let's try to keep up with this all year if we can, eh? You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.